Hello everyone, welcome to this Newcastle Writers Festival experiment. Uh, hopefully you've, you know, it's afternoon, Saturday, hopefully you can get yourself a beverage. I'm not going to judge you what sort of beverage that is. Find a comfortable spot because uh, I think you're in for a really interesting conversation. There's so much material to unpack with uh, David Laser's fantastic book, Women, Men and the Whole Damned Thing. And uh, I'm going to have to keep a close eye on my watch here uh, because I don't want to go over time. There's a lot of a lot of issues to discuss. I really appreciate you being part of this and participating and hopefully it's something that we can continue doing as we all deal with this kind of new world of being at home and being in isolation. I first came across David Laser because I'm a fellow journalist and uh, like David, my career has been spent on feature writing, so long-form journalism. And there's no one better in the business than, than David. And so I always admired him from afar. And then a few years ago, he came to the Newcastle Writers' Festival on the back of his memoir that concentrated on uh, his relationship with his father, uh, Bernard Laser, an amazing magazine man, uh, well, very well known in the media industry. And so I kind of met David at that point and then we've crossed paths at other writers' festivals and I was in Byron at Byron Writers Festival last year when he launched this fantastic book, which we'll touch on in a moment. About I want to ask him about that launch. So I'm going to have a chat to David. Welcome, David. Thank you so much for being here. I know it's uh, it's very strange for all of us getting used to this uh, new format, but uh, I think I think hopefully it can be the start of something really exciting. So thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me, Rosemary. Thank you for such a lovely introduction. Can we start at, I know it's kind of strange, I'm not going to take you back to the actual book, um, starting the book, but can I take you to the, the actual book launch in Byron Bay? We were all jammed into a little bookshop down, uh, in, you know, down where all the shops are in Byron Bay. It was part of the Byron Writers Festival. And your daughter, Hannah, was there. I can't remember if your other daughter was there at the time, but um, there was this incredible love in the room, um, it emanated from you. It emanated towards from you towards your daughter, and but you're very um, you spoke very um, emotionally about your daughters. Can I get you to talk a little bit, just briefly, about why your daughters have been important in relation to this book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think to start with. Hannah, my younger daughter, who's 25, she's a little more politicised. She's a lot more politicised than her elder daughter, uh, than her elder sister, my elder daughter, Jordan, who's 30. Um, Jordan's a singer-songwriter um, and Hannah is, um, you know, degrees in international relations and, um, you know, sort of has worked for NGOs and a very um, sort of... Um, you know, sort of feminism, you know, raised by a feminist mother and uh, as was her sister, but grew up in a much more political and politicised environment. And when, and this book, Women, Men and the Whole Damn Thing, grew out of an article that I wrote for Good Weekend magazine, which was a cover story back in sort of 2018, early 2018, a few months after the whole Me Too movement erupted mm. in America. And Hannah kind of begged me not to write the story. Children don't hold back, do they? Children tell it like it is. She just said, 
don't, Dad, please, whatever you do, don't write this story. And <clears throat> I said, why? Um, you know, she's never told me not, not to write a story before. Mm. And, I, and she said, because, and I said, why? She said, because I just don't think you get it. And I said, well, what do you mean? What don't I get? She said, I just don't think you get the Me Too movement. I said, of course I get the Me Too movement. Why, why wouldn't I? She said, because every time we talk about it, uh, you say, but, mm. but what's this going to do for men and women's relationship in the workplace? But what about uh, false accusations? But what about conflating, you know, the worst uh, transgressions with the least? She said, Dad, just shut up um, and stop saying but and just listen to women and listen to what we're trying to say, millions of women, and don't just listen to us. Stand beside us. Stand behind us. Bear witness to us. And um, it was a really powerful moment, and I, and that's what I did. I spent a few months writing that Good Weekend cover story, and mm. then because of the response to the story, <clears throat> and you were over, I mean, I think you said, um, you say in the book, you know, from every story, you've, from every feature you've ever written, the, the most overwhelming response was to that feature in Good Weekend. Yeah, yeah. And it was called yeah. Women, Men and the Whole Damn Thing. It, it, it had that title. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, look, it, it just was a story that landed in the zeitgeist. And mm. I think because it was a... It was a man because I partly was because it was a man writing about this because, you know, the, it wasn't just my daughters, but they really shaped uh, my thinking around this because also it led me into talking with them about their own sexual experiences, which we talked about before. It wasn't like we were coy about those subjects because it was just mm. father and daughter. We had been, had a very candid relationship about that, but I didn't know the full extent of stuff that had happened to both of them, stuff that was normalised um, as it was for millions of women around the world, hundreds of millions of women, it's just, you know, something that's went with the territory of being a woman, being female. Mm. And they talked to me about the things that had happened and they spent their <clears throat> part of their childhood in Byron Bay. The stuff that sort of uh, went on in Byron just on a normal Saturday night at a party and the ways in which young men treated women as, as um, not even property. They treat their property better than the way they treated women. I mean, one of the things I heard was, you know, by and by on a Saturday night, it was not uncommon for young women to be pissed on by guys if they passed out on, on the lawn at a party for guys to just piss on them. And, like, that wasn't just a one-off. That, mm. that happened all the time. So... I don't kind of like the, the argument that men often make in this, uh, in this political discussion, um, oh, because I've got daughters, I therefore, yeah. you know, like I don't think you need daughters to actually see this as a human rights issue. Um, but in, just purely in, simply as ethics, an, an ethical issue. This is how you behave. This is how you don't behave. Um, so... You know, you hear it a lot, I've got daughters and therefore. Well, it's, it's, it shouldn't be the reason. But in my case, it was a really um, provocative, robust, 
raw kind of conversations with both my girls around all of this. And so, and particularly with Hannah. And so, yeah, that, that Byron launch was, was emotional because she had been so pivotal in, in, in giving me, first of all, confronting me um, with all the things I needed to be confronted with, uh, but then also just endorsing what I was trying to do, one, you know, once she felt that, the sub, that I, the, I don't know, once she felt the subject was in safe hands with me. Well, I think she, I, you know, she was asking you to do some self-interrogation. Yeah, she sure was. I think it, it's that sense that you convey in the book, and you not, might not even be aware of it, that what she was seemed to be picking up uh, with great um, accuracy was possibly why you're going to be writing about this before you've reconciled possibly some of your own blind spots or, or looked at some of those blind spots. And blind spots are great um, when you don't know they're there. When someone points them out to you, suddenly it's almost like a switch goes on and you think to yourself, I can't believe I have behaved like this or or acted like this. And it doesn't even necessarily, I'm not talking about even criminal behaviour or anything, but, you know, we do have those blind spots. And what she was asking you to do, probably without being explicit, was saying, well, you know, you, you're going to be out there kind of looking at this um, this issue and the complexity of it. How can you separate yourself from this interrogation? Yeah, well, I mean, it wasn't just her. It was my, um, you know, beloved agent, Jane Novak, and, and my publisher, Jane Paulfinman. I mean, they, they totally believed in me doing this book, but they, at the same time they said, you're going to have to put yourself in there. And I, I suppose in the early stages of, of writing, I thought I could get away with, get away with not. Like a like journalist. A, like a journalist. Write, <laughs> yeah. Just write about everybody else. Um, and um, write about Weinstein and Matt Lau and, you know, Charlie Rose and Roger Ailes and all those other guys out there and write about what happens in, you know, uh, South Sudan and then, you know, in the Congo and in Pakistan and, and the horrific things that happen to women around the world. But why would I have to examine my own kind of stuff? Because, yeah, I've never assaulted someone. I've never... Um, hurt a woman physically but that's yeah that's um I couldn't give myself that wriggle room in this book mm. this this required um a yeah ruthless self-interrogation because we you know as, as we know there's a spectrum of behaviors and at the worst end of the, that spectrum is mm. is rape and uh honor killings and you know dousing women with Acid and I mean the, the most horrific things that happen around the world uh, because women are seen as um, the property of of men and and you know in Mexico and I mean the, the violations and the Serbian rape camps I go into all of this sort of stuff so there's all of that that we can quite easily identify as just um, horrific monstrous behaviour but at the other end of the spectrum something that every woman knows only too well um, is, is the kind of casual sexism, the ways in which women are um, silenced or demeaned or objectified or mansplained to. Um, uh, and 
you know, that, that uh, or that, you know, that they're in that kind of fulcrum of, um, you know, a man and a woman's relationship, you know, Jermaine Greer said, you know, the domestic half is, is, is the main theatre of political war between a man and a woman and that kind of reckoning. Um, whose projects matter more? Whose needs matter more? Uh, and, you know, it was, it, it was in that area when I was married to a strong feminist for 23 years, my girl's mother, um, I'd worked for strong feminist editors, you know, like Anne Summers and, and Fenella Suda and Shona Martin, women that you would know, Rosemary, and, and I'd profiled, you know, Jermaine Greer and Helen Garner and women overseas, you know, Ingrid Betancourt and Ian Hershey Alley. I mean, I, I kind of thought I knew this territory. Um, but in my own marriage, actually, this is where I really need to, needed to self-interrogate. Um, you know, a lot of the, you know, my former wife had, you know, and has strong career, very talented and strong career uh, ambitions. And the division of labour was not a fair division in, uh, in our marriage. And all those prerogatives that I had grown up with that I hadn't thought about, these are the unconscious biases. Well, I, you know, mm. um, I'm a journalist and I've got to travel and I've got a deadline and this is my story and this is important work and what have you. And uh, so it wasn't fair. It wasn't equal. And it was, it was the great fault line of, of, of our marriage. And had I, this was the great sadness too in, in personal sadness because there was just this whole collective horror and sadness uh, with the subject itself, sometimes to the point where I felt immobilised. Um, but there was the personal sadness too. If, I, if I'd only got this kind of mm. better, only really fully understood this, then her life would have been better. I say this thing, but her life would have been better and, and so would have mine. And, mm. um, you know, so... There's all of that. Mm. The, I mean, the downfall of Harvey Weinstein is was the truth. Yeah, let's talk way. about him. It's much better. Let's talk about Harvey. No, I yeah, get it off you. You deflect attention. Um, but the that was the, the I suppose the spark, wasn't it? That um, that really drove the Me Too movement. That prompted um, this sort of. Then it became a cascade of revelations, um, not just about Harvey, but about other men. You landed in New York, and you write about this in the book. You landed in New York uh, 24 hours after he was arrested, and you're in your hotel and you're watching the TV news, and um, he's charged with rape, a couple of you know incredibly serious offences. And you you talk about sort of almost the physical shock of seeing this unfold. And what shocked me about that is that you were shocked. What? Why? You know, were you so shocked about someone like Harvey Weinstein um, being exposed in this way? Well, what shocked you about it? Oh, just the just the the mighty fall. You actually, I was actually witnessing the mighty fall. I was there, and it had happened. And um, not that it was, not that it shouldn't have happened. Not that I wasn't pleased that you know he was going to that he actually been arrested. Um, um, 
I mean, Harvey Weinstein is one of the more odious characters, but what I found, I was shocked in that sense of, you mean this thing is working? This redress is working, that women's, women's um, testimonies are being believed now, finally, um, mm. and, and they're going to bring to heel one of the most powerful men in Hollywood. Um, so shocked in that sense that look how the mighty fall. In doing the research, and you did a you know, tremendous amount, as you've mentioned, you know, you look at um, you know, what's happening around the world, you go back in history and you look at the seeds of misogyny. Mm. What did you learn about misogyny in that research? What did you learn about, um, you know, how it sort of planted its roots in, in sort of civilization and uh, and continues to kind of permeate and sprout and, and grow, uh, you know, now across, you know, vast networks around the world. I mean, how, how, what, what did you learn about misogyny that you didn't, you didn't know before? What was the, I mean, maybe the most surprising thing or, or um, even shocking aspect of it? Well, there's so much to that, so much to the answer in that question and so much to the question. Um, so, I think, let me start with, I don't think I really understood that it was a historical process, that it hadn't always been that way, that there hadn't always been a patriarchy, um, that for thousands of years, back into the Neo-Paleolithic era, as far back as 25,000 BC, societies all over the world venerated the feminine. They, you know, it was female deities and she, this was all through Europe and Asia and the Middle East, and she went by many names. Nuwa in China, Brigitte in, in Celtic Island, Astarte in Canaan, Isis in Egypt, and she was the mother goddess, the divine ancestress, and, and the earth was seen um, as feminine. And she was responsible for the bounty of the harvest, for agriculture, and uh, not just that, but um, the alphabet and for music and language uh, in Ireland. So there was a reverence for the feminine. And that began to change. Uh, over a period of time. Uh, and then we're talking about well before Judaism, well before the Hebrew invasion of Canaan, which is around 1500 BC, from which we get the sort of the foundation textbooks of our Judeo-Christian uh, heritage, which then informed Christianity and the church elders and Christian theologians and then informed Islam. But prior, I'll get to that in a second, but prior to that, there is lots and lots of evidence that in hunter-gatherer societies, particularly in foraging societies, that women enjoyed equal rights to men, that they, that there was, they shared resources with men, including sexual resources, that men did not control women's sexuality or their sovereignty, um, 
at all and that, and that, in fact, there was what was called partable paternity in many, many parts of the world, in many uh, communities all through South America and in Papua New Guinea and um, parts of Asia where, you know, you'd choose that guy for his hunter-gatherer skills, you'd choose that guy for his storytelling skills, you'd choose him because he was funny, you'd choose him because he was strong or he was handsome. Um, and... You know, there was no concept actually until 1500 BC. Men didn't actually know that they, that, that, that they had any role in, 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 in the fact of uh, children. Mm. You know, until 1500 BC, uh, and this, this arrived in the form of, one of the Hittite myth, which actually made men aware that coitus and childhood uh, and childbearing was related. Until that time, uh, women were impregnated by the river or the moon or, you know, uh, it was an animist kind of um, divine provenance thing. Once men realised that they had something to do with, um, child, you know, childbearing, um, they had power. There was a power. There was a, you know, a sense of being able to stake a claim. That's right. And, and so that, that happened, again, it was not one period of time, but that happened, that was 1500 BC. But in, you know, a thousand years before the Indo-European invasion of the Middle East and, and North Africa and uh, Asia, they brought with them an idea of a masculine god. Until that, there had been no male god worship in Europe prior to 2500 BC. The earth was feminine. Mm. And once they started introducing the idea of a masculine god, women's rights began to alter significantly, their, their legal rights, their political rights, their sexual rights, so that by the time you get to the Hebrew invasion of Canaan, where there was female deity worship all through Canaan. So my forefathers and foremothers, the Jewish people, um, they conquered Canaan. It was great bloodletting, but and, and you know, and this is when the you know state of Israel, first state of kingdom of Israel, uh, was established. I mean, this was one of the great kind of um, acts of destruction of of feminine worship so that when you get to reading the bible today and you read the book of deuteronomy for example and 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 you see there that you know a woman who is found not to be a virgin on her wedding night shall be dragged to the door of her father's home and stoned to death mm. Uh, in the book of Genesis, a woman shall get her naming rights from man. You know, Eve came from Adam's rib. Um, in Leviticus, that a girl between one month and five years old is worth five shekels. Um, sorry, a boy is worth five shekels and a girl is worth three shekels. And that was the first pay gap, uh, you know, which, mm. which was in the Bible. And so this was new. This hadn't been 
this hadn't existed in ancient Mesopotamia and ancient Samaria and ancient Babylon and in, in the ancient world before in hunter-gatherer societies. This was a new idea of the role of the feminine and everything changed from that point. I don't so, know if you've read, yeah. Sorry, David, I don't know if you've read um, Christos Cholkos's most recent novel, Damascus, and, um, you know, centres on the birth of... No, I don't centers on the you know the birth of uh, of Christianity essentially in the the Christian church and uh, he in the the first chapter is an account of a stoning uh, and Saul St Paul is looking on uh, and it is visceral it is harrowing and uh, it's uh, I think it happened 32 BC um, and Saul you know is Jewish and and watching on it was it's the um, stoning of a Christian girl, a, a young girl. I think she's about 14 or 15. And everyone who reads the book talks about that. And I've been at events where he's asked about it. And um, and I think because there's a sense when you're reading it, you've amped it up. You've you've just you know you've you've this you just can't comprehend the experience of it. It's as I said, it's so visceral. This this poor girl. And uh, and what you're talking about is is the um, you know the the beginning, uh, religion obviously comes into play, the beginning of this sense that the female is, is worth less. And I know that you, uh, you know, you're, in the book you refer to um, Thomas Aquinas, you know, the Christian philosopher, and, you, you, and he is described, uh, declared a woman to be an incomplete man, you know, mm. an accidental being. And so mm. as you... Aristotle, Aristotle followed up with that those ideas too, you know, and, I mean, he said that um, a woman had fewer fewer teeth than um, a man, to which Bertrand Russell replied 2,000 years later, well, if Aristotle had let his wife open her mouth from time to time, he would have seen that was not the case. But, you know, Tertullian, the Greek theologian, uh, the Christian theologian, he described the... Uh, the vagina is a temple built over a sewer and the devil's gateway, right? I mean, you know, Christian Christian theology, so it started with, with the Old Testament, but Christian theology is just shot through with the most vile um, misogyny. And mm. uh, so this is where it started, yeah. How important do you think it is? I mean, you, you, as you're saying, you, you, didn't, you weren't aware of this history. How important... Is it to have a sense of that history and that past uh, in 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 the environment and context of now? I mean, should we be teaching it in schools? Do, is it important if we're looking at trying to enact change and cultural change in this area uh, and that sort of bridge this divide between men and women? Uh, do we learn this? Should we learn this? Yeah. Well, I, I think we we should. I mean, there's lots of things we should be learning earlier um, that we don't and lots of things possibly we could dispense with because the curriculum is outdated. Um, I mean, do we need to be learning maths when we've got artificial intelligence and computers? Um, maybe it's good for cogitation, but I think probably learning about empathy and self-regulation, particularly boys, might be um, more advisable given mm. the levels of violence uh, in our society, um, male violence against women, but also male self-harm. So, yeah, I, I think that, see, 
what this goes to, Rosemary, is um, this attack on the feminine, because I actually see it more as a, a, a masculine feminine thing rather than men and women, mm. you know, because I think that there are those archetypes that we can kind of loosely play with. Um, and what the patriarchal religions did, which was, was they, they actually changed the worship of the feminine. They desecrated the feminine, you know, sort of, and feminine, you know, matrilineal lines suddenly started and kinships suddenly started shifting to patrilineal and patriarchal. And so those values of the feminine, which was intuitive, collaborative, nature worshipping, um, uh, imaginative, you know, vulnerable, those values began being replaced by logic and reason and competition and domination and aggression. And as I come to in my book, that also did terrible damage to, to men because mm. every child that enters the world, with very few exceptions, I mean, you know, has all of those sweet, tender, vulnerable, delicious qualities that is what makes children what they are, who they are. And, but the values of, of softness and tenderness, those archetypal feminine values, get shamed and bullied out of boys as they grow up. And we see it in all kinds of cultures. Don't be a sissy. Um, be a man. Don't cry. Suck it up. Um, the worst thing a boy can be called is a girl. And what does that tell boys about the feminine? Uh, it tells them that it's, that it's inferior um, mm. and, that, and that they will not actually cut it as a man if they display or betray those kinds of things. So that's the tyranny of the patriarchy, not just on women but on men. And, and yes, I mean, you write about the impact of patriarchy on, on men and boys and uh, I know, uh, you know, Clementine Ford's book Boys Will Be Boys also touches on this, that we're all damaged by patriarchy. It's, it's, um, it's narrow-minded to think and just concentrate on the, on the damage it inflicts on women because, as you're saying there, you know, boys and men also pay a price for this. But it's, it's whether or not you're prepared to address that, I mean, you know, and even see that. What's your view about it? Do you think a lot of men don't see that they're damaged by patriarchy? Well, that, and in a way, why would they? they it, it allows men to flourish. It allows men to, you know, to dominate boards, to earn more money than women, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on. Yeah, it's true. Um, a lot of men don't. Well, you know, look, if you, a lot of men don't see the privileges or the entitlements that have come their way by virtue of being men um, because that's just the air that we've breathed, mm. you know. But also there are a lot of men who see the way in which they've, the communities have been 
broken, their jobs have been, jobs and industries have been decimated. And they don't feel power. What do you mean the men have the power? They feel completely powerless. Um, But, you know, so there's no one answer to all this. It's so so vast. It's so incredibly Mm. complex, this whole subject. But but I do think that a a lot of men, and this is where the men's rights movement comes in and figures like Jordan Peterson who appeal, you know, sort of very well to this kind of collective grievance of, some men who cast around for someone to blame. And, you know, a lot of the time they blame women. They blame feminism for what's happened to their industry or community. I mean, that wasn't women who did that. Mm. Um, But they see it as because women, 60% of the of the graduates are women, you know, 60 to 70% of the talent that's coming through universities and going into top paying positions are women. Um, so men, men, some men who would prefer to see women as the enemy or refugees as the enemy or whatever, rather than the shifting socioeconomic kind of forces that, that have you know, the whole ground has shifted under our feet. Um, and that's not women, that's not migrants, but it's a very, very convenient scapegoat. And I think that, you know, if you, if there are men who are doing wonderful men's work in this country and elsewhere who go into communities and talk to men who feel really aggrieved and really powerless. And when you start unpacking this, they, I think many of them come to realise it wasn't women who took their jobs. Um, and it wasn't their job in the first place. You know, that, that, that presumption that it was their job, my job. There's a great TED talk by Michael Kimmel called a, a Black Woman Took My Job, and he unpacks this idea. Whoever said that it was your job in the first place? Yeah. Again, it's right. that sense of entitlement. Yeah. So you've got to be very careful with all of this, though, because there are a lot of broken men who have grown up like I grew up thinking that my main job as a man was to be the provider. You know, you know, the, lots of studies that look at, look at what are the main definitions of masculinity and, and almost the, the principal one is that the man will be the provider for his partner and children. And if that gets taken away from you, what are the other ways in which you can define your own sense of manhood. Uh, so mm. we have to redefine what it means to be a good man. Uh, what, does it, what does it mean to be a good man? Um, well, I think it, it's, it's, it's what does it mean to be a good person? You know, it's, it's to be... Uh, Generosity, kindness, um, resolve where resolve is required, um, ambition where ambition can get you certain places but not at the expense of those around you. Um, um, you know, strong and tender, not to be ashamed of your vulnerability, to see a strength in vulnerability. Um, 
not to um, to view all you know to view women with respect um, to raise your boys your sons to respect um, respect women and I mean, it's such a big thing. What does it mean to be a good man? What does it mean to be a good woman? You know, but I, I think there's just basic criteria out there around what mm. being a good human being is. Um, but something about challenging the model of manhood that boys are presented with from a very early age, I think does, it's, very, it's crippling. It cripples boys early on. When 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 it when these models of manhood kind of sev- it severs something kind of it's just natural inside every human being, which is to feel things and to feel things strongly and to not have those feelings bullied or shamed or at worst beaten out of you because they're regarded as unmanly. That does tremendous damage to boys early on. And is it any surprise then that when relationships later on in life get complicated? that men have absolutely no capacity, some men, to respond in a healthy way. Mm. There's so much. Oh, there's so, I mean, I've got notes and notes and questions and questions. We are running out of time. So I might finish on this question. I mean, you invite men to self-interrogate. To I mean, you invite men to read the book, uh, but you also invite them to, I suppose, take on that challenge, which which you did um, in writing the book about interrogating the way they behave, their, their actions um, and the way they fit within, you know, patriarchy, their place within this, this system. Have they taken you up on that? I mean, I know you can't know every reader and you can't, but I know anecdotally you have conversations, you might be at a friend's house and the topic of your book comes up. I mean, what's your sense of it? Because my feeling is women will read this book. Women, you know, women will take this on and read this and uh, and I think it's very valuable for women to read it as well, but do you think men are going to take have taken on that challenge? The book's been out now for about six months or so, roughly. Um, have they taken it on? Well, I know a lot of women who've kind of foisted on the men in their life. You know, um, that one said to me, um, you know, I'm going to leave you unless you read this book. Um, <laughs> and he did read it. Oh, um, I thought you said yeah. she did leave him. I thought you... <laughs> no, he read it. Good, good, good on him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, look, I know a lot of guys who who read it. I mean, I can't say it how many um, of the uh, copies sold have, have been um, bought by men or bought for men, but a lot of men have contacted me and they've thanked me. Uh, and as you say, it was principally written for men. I didn't want to tell women what to think. Um, that, that's, been, mm. that's been happening for centuries, men telling women what to think. But um, I, I did want to write this and invite men to come on this kind of journey with me. And the ones who have, um, they've just said, thank you. You know, Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, to distill it into one thing, it's like I had no idea. I had no idea where my views came from, where my uh, objectifying uh, talk came from, where all of this stuff came from. And, you know, you've helped me unpack this and 
I'm looking back on my behaviour in a new way. Mm. So I have had a lot of that anecdotally. So that's that's really gratifying. Well, you you know you you did take it on, and I I know that um, through conversations at various times how challenging it was, and I also know that you admit. I mean, the first sentence of the book is. You know, what is a straight, uh, middle-aged, privileged white male doing, taking this on? And, and there was agitation when, you know, from certain people about you doing this book. But, um, mm. but, but, but because I know you, I know that you would have been taking it on with great sincerity and, um, and, and I know you would have applied all your journalistic skills to it. So I, I didn't have that same feeling. I know that, as I said, you, some critics said, oh, what another man you know, taking on a mansplaining is writing because you, it was right in the thick of the meat. When you started the book, the Me Too movement had just taken off. So got to put it in that context. Things have moved along now. Our focus is definitely at the moment, I would say, not on Me Too, even though Harvey Weinstein's now sitting in Rikers uh, with COVID, um, which you couldn't really make up, could you? Uh, and we no. could you have imagined when he was arrested that first time that, A, he would end up sentenced and, B, that he would end up with you know, part of this uh, pandemic that is dominating a lot of our thoughts at the moment um, and a lot of our focus. Thank you for for having a chat to me. There is there's so much more we didn't get to. Um, read the book, Women, Men and the Whole Damn Thing. Uh, it's 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 really good. Give it to the men in your life. Give it give it to those even teenagers. I think there's a lot to be uh, gained from it, uh, even at the teen you know teenager age. If you want to buy the book, uh, you can. There'll be information in the session description. You can click; it'll go through to our fantastic uh, bookseller, McLean's, to the team there, and you don't have to leave the comfort of your home. Uh, if you do want to donate to the festival, if you want to support us as we look ahead to 2021, um, by all means, feel free. There's also a link there um, for this. But thank you so much, David. Thank you, everyone, for participating. Give us your feedback um, as a festival director. This is new territory. For all of us, we've all had to kind of leap into the unknown, but I think this is going to be the way we do things for some time yet and we want to be there with you uh, while you're isolating and, and offer some comfort. So um, we're, we're going to look at doing some events fairly regularly in this way and we appreciate your support. Thank you.